We're in this series called uh, Struggling with God, and in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at some of the stress points in our relationship with God, right? So there's big stress points, big places where it's hard to uh, kind of understand God's heart and God's mind. Why is he doing what he's doing, or why doesn't he do something? And then those stress points move all the way down to very personal questions. Uh, why, God, why is God interacting with me this way? And how am I supposed to understand that and relate to that? And the Bible would teach us that struggling with God is a natural part of our relationship with God. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 says, uh, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And basically what God is saying is, to us, he's saying, hey, guys, I'm, I'm God and you're not. And, and you're not going to understand things the way that I understand them. I have a perspective that you can't have because you're not God. I see things through the whole of eternity. I have a higher viewpoint than you do. I see the world. I see humanity. I see your life differently than you're going to see it. And that's the nature of it. That's why I'm God and why you're not. And you're going to struggle with that sometimes. Sometimes it's going to be hard to understand. The Bible then teaches us that the bridge between that understanding, when I hit those stress points, the bridge there is faith. This is where I have faith. God isn't a math problem. So two plus two doesn't equal four. He doesn't work like that. God is a relationship, and every relationship takes trust and faith. And so the Bible says that I have to have faith in order to interact with God. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it's actually impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we've defined faith along the way. We said that faith is not naivety. Faith is not ignorance. It's not turning a blind eye. Faith is a choice. So faith is me choosing to believe in what I cannot and will not ever fully understand. It's a cognitive decision. I know that I don't understand God. I know that his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. But I choose to trust his heart. I choose to follow him. I choose to interact with him by faith. And then we said that accepting the Bible is part of that faith. Looking and, and saying, I believe, I choose to believe that the Bible is the words of God. The Bible is the, is the source of truth. So truth kind of comes from the Bible up. And so when I'm looking for direction and I'm looking for insight, I'm looking for correction, I go to the Bible and I, I receive what the Bible has to say and then I weave that into my life and I follow God uh, by faith. So we've been having those conversations uh, and we started to tackle some of the big questions that result from them. So last weekend, we talked about the exclusivity of Jesus and how Jesus in the Bible says that he is the only path to heaven that you can't get to heaven unless you go through him. And the other faiths, other religions, Christianity, at the core of our belief system would be that we believe there's one way to God. And so we looked at that question, kind of wrestled with it a little bit, and uh, looked at Jesus' heart, his motive. Why did he say that? The other religious leaders have said they're the way to heaven, and they've gained armies or wealth or power or fame. Jesus said, I'm the only way to heaven, and he got crucified for it. And so he, he, the benefit to him was nil. He laid down his life, and we said, boy, if he didn't have an ulterior motive, maybe he was just telling us the truth. Maybe it wasn't so much a claim as it was a statement of fact, that I love you, I want you to have eternal life, and I'm, I'm the way to it. I'm the truth, I'm the life. You've got to come through me to get to heaven. So all those conversations are online. So you can go out to our website, uh, hit the media tab, you can... Uh, listen to them. You can watch them. You can get a free podcast through iTunes if you want. And uh, if you want to catch up with that, you can. We want to tackle kind of another pressing question. And it's a big philosophical question that has huge personal ramifications to it. And we're going to kind of talk about it in that way. We're going to start way up here and then land it in our family room by the time that we're done today. But here's the big question. How can an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God allow evil and suffering to exist in the world? Another way to say it, why do bad things happen to good people? Another way to say it, if God's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, why doesn't he make my problems go away? Right? There's a bunch of ways to approach that question. And uh, 
There's a bunch of ways that that is asked. And let me say this at the, at the get-go. That is a very, very fair question. It's a very fair question. So if you ever ask that question to somebody and they say, don't question God, you should smack that person. That's what the Bible says. You just have to read it in the Hebrew. It's in there. But don't, don't ignore that person. You know, should we question God? Yeah, sometimes we have to because he doesn't make sense to us. So looking and saying, you know what, I believe that God is all-powerful, because he is. I believe that God is all-knowing, because he is. I believe that God is all-loving, and he is. So why don't you make my problems go away? That's a very fair question. It's a question that you have to wrestle with, and it's a question that there are not clear answers to, and I want you to know that. You're, you're not going to walk out of here this weekend with a silver bullet that makes that question go away. If I, if I could do that, I would, I would be much wealthier than I am right now, right? Because I could answer a lot of the world's questions. These are questions of faith. And questions of faith boil down to answers of faith. And that's why we kind of had the conversation that we had that ultimately I'm choosing to believe in who God is and who he, who he says he is. So you need to know that. I'm going to be able to, I think, show you some different perspectives of God I think frame the question correctly. I think, I think even help you. Uh, if you are the victim of suffering and injustice, even help you know kind of how to navigate that. But you're going to leave here today and you're going to have to decide to have faith because that question ultimately can't be answered because God doesn't answer it. Okay? So today is, is this weekend's going to be a lot of fun, but I just I want to warn you up front that you, you better buckle up because we're going to work at this today, right? So you're going to walk out of here and your brain's going to be exhausted because we're really going to have to think this through. Probably the only thing to do to re- alleviate the exhaustion of your brain once you leave church is to go to Chipotle. I don't know what else you would possibly do to do that. So we'll let you out early so you can beat the Methodists there. And but we're going we're gonna to work at this, okay? And we're going to do some heavy thinking and I think get a good perspective on God and help you, uh, help you be able to kind of bolster faith in a new way and to have the conversation that way, okay? So good and evil. Let, let's start to frame this question. This is a very important starting point. When you have the conversation of good and evil, it has to be framed correctly I'm going to show you what's happening, kind of the reality of our world, but the question of good and evil is a big, big deal, and if you don't frame it correctly and look at it correctly, then what happens is you don't have the right perspective on God, so you translate what God's doing incorrectly, okay? So let's kind of push back to the beginning, and let's, uh, let's talk about this. What is the reality of humanity when it comes to good and evil? What's the reality of humanity? Here's the reality. The reality of humanity is that there is a war that exists between good and evil that is active right now. This war was started by Satan, the devil, the evil one, and it started before human beings were even created. So the Bible teaches us that a war broke out in heaven between Lucifer, who is an angel. He's not a, a horned pitchfork devil. He's actually the most beautiful thing God ever created. So he's an angel. He became prideful and he tried to overthrow God and take charge of heaven. The Bible says that a war broke out, that God won that war, and Satan and the demons or the fallen angels, a third of them, were thrown out of heaven. So that war between good and evil was started by Satan, started before human beings entered into the picture. Then you land at the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve. You see that war playing out where Satan comes in. He tempts Eve, Genesis chapter 3. Sin enters into the equation. And now that war becomes the reality of our human existence. Now, why is this such a big deal? It's such a big deal because it's very important to remember that when you wake up every day, you wake up and live in a war zone. There is a war, an active war, it's a hot war, between good and evil, and you are the focus of it, okay? Why? Because Satan hates everything that God loves. He hates everything that God loves. 
And what does God love the most passionately? God loves you the most passionately. God gave his only son, Jesus, to come to the earth to die for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus didn't come to save cats, certainly not. He didn't come to save dogs or goldfish. He came to rescue humanity from hell. Humanity is the object of God's passion, which means that we are also the object of Satan's hatred. There's a war, and we are the prize. And God is fighting for our souls, and so is the evil one is fighting for our souls. And so the tension and that reality is a huge reality. Now, the Bible talks about this in many places, but let me just take you to one that's a little bit familiar. If you've got your Bibles, open them up and turn to Ephesians. Ephesians. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. You can use those. It's page 817 in those Bibles. And if you're a smartphone, iPad person, we use the version app. So you can use that app, open it up, hit live, and our zip code is 44333. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that, you, uh, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. And this is one kind of a familiar part of the Bible, but one of many places in the Bible that speak of this war. So the Apostle Paul is speaking on God's behalf and he's talking to Christians and he's saying, you better suit up because you're in a war. Put on the full armor of God. You're not fighting flesh and blood. Your problem isn't with politicians or this guy at work or the people that you don't like. It's a spiritual war. It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms of this dark world. That's where we're at, and that's the reality that you live in, okay? So there is a hot war between good and evil, started before humanity came around, plays out in the Garden of Eden, affects us. You and I are caught up in it. Okay, it's going on today. Now, let's talk about war for a second. This is very important. In every just war, okay, in every just war, there is an aggressor and there is a liberator. So think about World War II. I'm a World War II buff. I like to watch World War II documentaries again and again and again. Heidi will come in and catch me watching World War II documentaries and she'll say, honey, we win every time, every time we win. And I'll say, go to Mexico, all right? So, so we had that fight last night too. So, it, right? So there's an aggressor and there's a liberator. So take World War II as an example. It's a kind of a, a less controversial war, right? So you have Germany and Japan and Italy. You have the Axis. You have aggressors. And then you have the allies. You have the, the United States and England and France and you've got the allies, okay? The aggressors start the war. The aggressors propagate the war. The aggressors are abusive in the war. Everything you hate about the war, right? The aggressors are the ones who drive that. The allies are the liberators. They come in to stop the aggressors. Now, As that war plays out between the aggressors and the liberators, the innocent are always caught in the middle. So there's always going to be that little kid that got caught in the bombing. There's always going to be that friendly fire incident. There's always going to be those things, okay? But if I don't understand that there's an aggressor and a liberator, this is what happens. If I fail to understand that, then I don't see the liberator or the aggressor properly. In a just war with an aggressor, those who are caught innocently in the war lay at the feet of the aggressor. If Hitler had never invaded Poland and started World War II, then that child would have never been caught in that bombing raid. If Japan had a bomb Pearl Harbor, then that person would have never been caught by that friendly fire. In the war with an aggressor and a liberator, the innocents 
are the responsibility of the aggressor. It's a big, big deal. When I look at the evil in the world, and I look and say, well, that kid's innocent, or that person was uh, raped, or that person was abused, or these things have happened in my life, or there's famine, and why are these people caught up? And the answer is correct. Correct. There's a war. Nature has fallen. The ramifications of sin are running wild. Who is responsible for that? And when we look at the innocence of the world and we ask those questions, it's critically important that those innocence, the responsibility is laid at the feet of the aggressor. It is the evil one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It is the evil one who propagates it. It is the evil one who has schemes. It is the evil one who takes joy out of those folks being hurt. Christ is the liberator. He didn't come to the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to the world to send everybody to hell. He came to the world to save the world. That's John 3, 17. He came to seek and to save that was lost. He is the liberator fighting against the evil propagated by the aggressor. Now, that's a big deal, guys. It's a very, very big deal. Because what happens many times is we will take the reality of the innocent and put the responsibility at the feet of God. It's not the way that a war works. There's a reality of the innocent, and the responsibility lays at the feet of the aggressor. It's very important to hold Satan responsible for what he is responsible for. And it alters our view of God because we can see what God is doing more clearly. We can understand God's heart more clearly when we have assigned the responsibility for all that we hate in life, sickness, death, disease, violence, abuse, abandonment. Where did it come from? From Satan who started the war, okay? John 10, 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only, Satan only has one goal. The thief of Satan comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest, right? Now that groundwork is very, very important, very, very important, because it's gonna allow us to translate what God is doing correctly by holding Satan responsible for what he does, what he loves, and how he affects our humanity. So it's from this position that you can start digging into this question of good and evil. And like I said earlier, it's going to boil down to faith. I want you to know something. The Bible is not clear as to why God doesn't make our problems go away. I'm going to give you some answers and some big views, but like I told you, you're not going to walk away fully satisfied by it. There isn't a silver bullet. What the Bible is very clear on is how we should respond to evil and suffering in the world, okay? So I tell folks this all the time. I've been a pastor a long time now. I'm getting old. I just look young and gorgeous, right? So, but actually my internals are old. So I've been doing this for a long time. And over, over the years, I have been with people who have gone through the most horrific experiences that human beings can go through. I've been with them when their children have died. I've been with them when they've been abandoned by their husband. I've been with them when their loved ones were murdered. I've been just on and on and on and on and on, okay? Inevitably, in that situation, they will look at their pastor and in one form or another, ask the question, Pastor Jeff, why did this happen to me? Right? And I will look at them and I will say, very honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why it happened to you and not that person. I don't know why God answered that person's prayer and didn't answer your prayer. I don't know why he chose to allow your life to kind of play. I do not have an answer to that. And I would say to you, anybody that has an easy answer to that, you should ignore. Okay? This is what I know. I know that at those moments, we are left with a choice. And it's a choice based in faith. 
And I like to say it this way. We have to decide in those very difficult moments whether I'm going to live in the answers or whether I'm going to live in the questions. My experience has been those who choose to live in the answers. This is who God says he is, what God says about his love for us, God's promise to never leave us, and how God tells us to respond. That stuff's easy to find in the Bible. I'm going to take you to some of it. Those folks who choose to live in the answers find a peace a stability in their soul, and they tend to be able to find a path forward in life. Folks who choose to live in the questions are usually defined by the questions and are forever bogged down in the quagmire of those questions. Why did God let it happen to me and not that person? There's not an answer to that question. You will get the answer one day when you're with Christ, but on this earth, there's not an answer. Not one that will satisfy, right? There's some peripheral answers. There's some silver linings. But if you boil it down to the core of that question, there is not the answer to that question. And so now I'm choosing to live by faith. I'm choosing to believe and to trust in what I cannot and will not ever fully understand. I'm not in denial about the questions. I'm just determined about the path forward and I'm determined to walk that path with Christ. So at the beginning of all this, there's a war, right? Good versus evil. Satan is responsible for everything that we hate in life. He started the war, he propagates the war, and he makes you the target of it. Christ is the liberator of that, okay? Well, why doesn't Christ just snap his fingers and knock Satan out? He's going to defeat him one day. Well, why not today? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Okay? What I know is who God says he is and what he's promised, and I know how he's told us to respond to him. So the questions are obvious, right? They're, they're kind of easy to, easy to see and easy to understand. The answers, the answers are a little more difficult to get a hold of. So let's look at these a little bit, and let's, let's try to grapple with some of these, uh, some of the answers about what God says and how he would cause us or want us to interact with him. So let's start up high. Let's ask the big, big cosmic question, okay? Why does God allow evil? Big cosmic question, and I'm going to give you a big cosmic answer. Ready? God allows evil ultimately because God is a God of freedom. Cosmic answer to a cosmic question. What does that mean? God is not a math problem. God is a relationship. <clears throat> In order to have a relationship with someone, you ready? This is where Chipotle gets involved. In order to have a relationship with someone, you must have the ability to make a choice, okay? To have a relationship, I have to be able to make a choice, right? So I don't have a relationship with the IRS, right? They're going to take my money or they're going to put me in prison, right? I don't have a relationship with them, but they get my money. I have a relationship with Grace Church. Grace gets my money too. But I'm doing it freely. I want to, see? It's a choice. If I'm going to have a relationship, I have to be able to choose. In order to have a choice, there must be an alternative. Or I can't make a choice, right? So the freedom to love someone necessitates the freedom to hate them. The freedom to do good for someone necessitates the freedom to do evil toward them. I can't have a relationship if I don't have a choice, and I can't have a choice unless there's an alternative. God doesn't make us love him. He wants us to love him, but he doesn't make us love him. Okay? He doesn't make us obey him. God gives us freedom. Why? Because our relationship with God is not a math problem. He doesn't turn us all into little robots who do whatever he says. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Relationships have to have choices. And in order to have choices, you have to have alternatives. So if God wants me to love him, he has to give me the ability to reject him. If he wants me to obey him, he has to give me the ability to disobey him. And that's what God is like. God is a God of freedom. Let me show you an example of this. Go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. 
If you turn to the left in your Bibles, about, I don't know, 50 pages maybe, you'll come across Romans chapter 1. And this is an example of God giving humanity choices. Okay? Verse 18, chapter 1, Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Now catch this, this is verse 24. This is the choice. So they knew God, they knew about God, can't deny that there's a God, creation speaks of God. It's written on the hearts of human beings. Human beings are the only part of creation that worship things. It's a part of who we are. So everybody knows that and creation reinforces that. They knew it, but they decided to reject it. They exchanged the glory of God to worship human beings, animals, birds, or reptiles. So here it is, it's God's choice, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. It's a big deal right there. God gave them over in the sinful desires of the heart to sexual impurity for the grading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God, about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relationships with, for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what, they, what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. And they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Fascinating. God gave them over. What does God say? God says, I'm here. It's in your humanity to search for me. Cats and dogs don't worship. Only human beings do that. Creation speaks of it. It's obvious that there's order, there's intelligent design in creation. You have to make yourself not believe that. Here I am. And God says, if you don't want to believe me, you don't have to. If you want to harden your heart and have your thinking become futile and darken your mind, you can do that. If you want to murder and have strife and malice and disobey your parents and have envy and live in immorality, you can do that. You can do that. If you want to completely ignore God in your life and push him out of your life, you will not get hit by a bolt of lightning. Probably, it happened once or twice in the Bible, but you know, probably that isn't going to happen to you. You can ignore God if you want. Now, there's consequences to it. And next weekend, we're going to talk about hell and how this, this idea plays into why there's a hell. There's consequences to it. If you want God out of your life, you can get God out of your life. You can do it forever if you want. Right? Why? Because God is not a math problem. He's a relationship. And in order to have a relationship, you have to be able to make a choice. In order to make a choice, there has to be an alternative. So if you don't want to love God, you can hate him if you want. If you don't want to obey God, you can disobey him if you want. But when you do, there's consequences that are earthly and eternal. Man's inhumanity to man is a consequence of us not yielding to God. 
If there's a war and there's two sides and I reject the liberator, then I have aligned with the aggressor and I'm going to act and behave in these aggressive ways. That works because God's a God of freedom. Now, pull it down a level. If there's evil in the world, why doesn't God take it away? Because he's got a freedom. So does that mean that God doesn't care then? Is that what you're saying? That when people cry out and say, God, help me, or this kid's starving to death in Africa, or this, this single mom and her kids are trapped in the inner city because they were abandoned, does that mean that God doesn't care about them? And the answer to that is no. Well, what's God doing about the injustice and the suffering of the world. This is fascinating, ready? The church is God's response to the cries of the world. The church is God's response to the cries of humanity. Every book of the Bible, God speaks of the poor, and in every book of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, God tells his people that you are to hear the cries of the poor and hear the cries of the oppressed, and you are to respond to it on my behalf. It's Literally, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all the way straight through. So God raises up his church and his people. And all through the Bible, God says to his people, when you hear of wickedness, or you hear of evil, or you hear of oppression, or you hear of need, you, in my name, go do something about it. In the Old Testament, when God's people were the nation of Israel, uh, he says this, for example, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, and what does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. James chapter 1, verse 27, when, when the church now is the people of God, James says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one from being polluted by the world. The pollution of the world that James is writing about is the pollution of materialism and favoritism. When God, God hears the cries of the poor, God would expect and direct his church to respond. Well, it's not fair that that little kid's starving to death in Africa. You're right. We should feed that kid. We should feed that kid. It's not, these kids, are, they're abandoned in the inner city who, this far apart. They don't want, somebody ought to do something about it. You're right, somebody ought to do something about it. Get in your car and drive seven miles to the east and get connected with those families. See? And it doesn't matter whether we're buying them markers and calculators or we're trying to put food in the, in the belly of a kid that's affected by famine and everything in between, the church is God's response to the cries of humanity. God didn't give the church to the church. He gave the church to the world. And so the church goes and the church addresses the needs and the despairs of the world and that becomes a platform in which we purchase relationship to share the ultimate hope of the world, which is Christ and the salvation that he offers. God does not ignore the cries of the poor. God directs his people to involve themselves in that and to be his answer for the injustice that's all around them. So on a massive level, we're in a war and you're the target of it. There's good and evil, but assign responsibility of evil to the evil one who started and propagates the war. Bring it down a level, why doesn't God just wipe it out? I don't have a silver bullet answer, but one of the answers to that is because God's a God of freedom. We're not robots. God wants a relationship. Relationships require choices. Choices require alternatives. You can love God and you can hate God. And when you hate God, man is inhumane to his fellow man. Well, does that mean God's turning a deaf ear? Of course not. We're sitting here. We're sitting here. Now, we might turn a deaf ear, but God has raised up a people. And he said to his people, go do something about that. Give your money, your time, your energy, and go do something about the cries of the poor in my name so that their needs are met and ultimately hope is given. Now let's bring this into our family room. What about when I am the victim? 
Because this is where the struggle really hits the road, right here. I'm the one. I'm the one who's been hurt. I'm the one that's been abused. I, I'm, the, I'm the one that, that has been harmed. I'm the one that's suffering. And I don't understand because I didn't do anything. I feel like I'm being punished by God and I didn't do anything to, get, to deserve being punished by God. Why is this happening to me? And I would look at you as your pastor with all honesty and say, I don't know. I don't know fully why God decided that that could happen to you and not happen to another person. What's God doing? Well, now I know the answer to that. It's a different question. So James chapter 1 teaches us that God is maturing us and completing us so we don't lack anything. That's why a Christian counts a trial as joy. How am I supposed to respond? That's another big question. And here it is. When I have been the victim of injustice and harm and suffering, the Bible teaches me that I am to forgive as I have been forgiven. Go back to Ephesians, back to the right a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to show you what I think is perhaps the hardest teaching of all of Christianity. Much more than moral purity. Much more than giving your money in time. I believe that this is one of the, if not the hardest teaching of Christianity. Ready? Here it is. Verse 31, chapter 4. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Perhaps the most difficult teaching of Christianity, which is also one of the greatest hallmarks of Christianity, one of the greatest uniquenesses of Christianity, is the teaching that comes from our Savior that says, you, as a follower of Jesus, are to love your enemy. However I perceive you to be my enemy, whether that perception is accurate or inaccurate, if I look at you and say, you have hurt me, you have harmed me, what am I, as a follower of Jesus, to do about that? I am to forgive that person ridding my heart of bitterness, anger, rage, malice, and slander, and replacing or importing into my heart kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, loving them as my Savior has loved me. Incredibly difficult. Now, let's just talk about this for a second. Forgiveness is not an event. It's very important to remember that. Forgiveness isn't an event. If somebody says, oh, forgive and forget, you should slap that person and then tell them they have to forgive you, right? So, that's nonsense. Why? Because we don't forget. We don't forget. So what's the principle? The principle is to forgive, and when you remember, to forgive. And when you remember again, to forgive. Forgiveness is a habit. It's not an event. I will forgive someone who's harmed me hundreds, if not thousands of times throughout the course of my life. Why? Because I don't forget. You scarred me. And so whenever I bump against that scar and it reopens that pain, I have to choose to forgive again. By the way, this is the nature of our relationship with God. He forgave me on the cross and he forgives me all the time. Okay? Now this is what I've seen in my, my life. When an event happens, I have to decide to run to the, the answers or run to the questions. Where am I going to live? And the answers are the questions. When someone is victimized and they're suffering, when they run to the answers and begin the process of forgiving, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dispel bitterness, anger, rage, brawling, and malice, and I'm going to import kindness and compassion and love that person will begin to heal, they will begin to reorient, they will begin to stabilize, and they, through Christ, will chart a path forward. 
It's fascinating. Even though they're doing what is counterintuitive to their humanity, God literally has to empower that to happen. The person who runs to the questions, we are defined by whatever's in our heart. The Bible says that, that the heart is the wellspring of life. So if I'm hanging on to bitterness, I will become a bitter person. If I'm hanging on to anger, I will become an angry person. My ex, he left me, he cheated on me, he did that. If I hang on to that, his victimization of me will go throughout my life. My dad, he abused me. My mom, she walked out on me. If I hang on to that, their victimization will victimize me the whole of my life. Even if I'm bitter at God, I thought I told God he better and he didn't. If I hang on to that, that bitterness will define me for the rest of my life. When I rid myself of it through the power of God, what defines my life is compassion, kindness, and love. Because whatever fills my heart is what fills my life. Well, why did this happen? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to lie to you and insult your intelligence. I don't know. I don't know. What am I supposed to do? I know that one. I forgive as I've been forgiven. Now, let me show you one last thing here, right? When I am the one who is harmed or I am the one who is suffering, my kid is sick. My loved one died. I'm under the gun, I'm the one that's suffering. Why me? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to lie to you. What do I do? I know this one. Ready? One of the big things that I need to remember is that I need to remember that my pain is never pointless. My pain is never pointless. Go back to the right in your Bibles a little bit. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 3 and following. Page 803, verse 3, chapter 1, second Corinthians. Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves are received from God. My pain is never pointless. And when I am going through trials, and when I'm going through sufferings, or I'm going through a victimization, God says, I will comfort you. I will not leave you or forsake you. It's a promise. And one of the reasons I'm going to comfort you is so that you can comfort others who will go through the same trials. Okay? I want you to catch this. Ready? Here we go. The most authoritative voice of God's love and goodness is the one who has suffered and chosen to trust in God's love and goodness. Did you catch that? The most authoritative voice of God's love and goodness is the one who has suffered and chosen to trust in God's love and goodness. My folks are both with the Lord now, and uh, I love them, was close to them, and sometimes us kids joke that we got our, um, our sense of humor and our personality and our brilliant knack for sarcasm from our father, but we got our backbone from our mama. My mother was a strong person in all the good senses of the word, usually, Right? Strong, strong person. If you ever want to meet somebody that has that kind of inner fortitude, uh, get to know Heidi. She's a lot like my mom. Just strong person, right? My mother had a miserable life. Grew up with an alcoholic dad, was abusive. Family, always on the edge of homelessness. He'd come home, beat her mom, beat her brothers. Got married when she was 17 to get out of the house. 
10 months later, my brother was born. So she's this very young mom with this baby. Starts living life with my dad, who was also dysfunctional because birds of a feather dysfunction together. And so they found each other, right? So they have no basis of being. So she didn't have this rosy, wonderful marriage. Has some kids. My brother, Doug, when he was eight years old, killed by a drunk driver in a car accident. So she goes through the deepest wound a human being can go through, burying their child. A few years after that, my aunt and uncle and six of my eight cousins were all killed in one car accident. Mom and dad walked them through that. The one surviving person in the car was an 18-year-old cousin of mine, moved into my home. Mom taught him to talk, eat, walk, use the bathroom, read. He had to relearn all these kind of things, right? When, uh, when her husband was 48, my dad, he had a stroke, wiped out their life. She's got to support the family. She's got a 12-year-old at home, right? She's got, she got to feed her family. Mom goes back to work, has to get in the marketplace, trying to work full-time, be a parent, go to school, take care of an invalid husband. Goes through that whole process, and in that process, loses her health. Gets into her 60s, has to retire because her heart's failing. Moves in with Heidi and I so we can pay her bills and, and take care of her. Has congestive heart failure, fights poor health the rest of her life, and dies at 69. It's a miserable life. Absolutely miserable life. And by the way, I didn't even fill in the details. It's awful. Okay. The bummer about having my mom as my mom was that you could never complain about anything. You know, I'd come home in high school, I'd be like, Mom, my math teacher is unfair in the private school that I go to. And she'd be like, really? Really? My dad is, you know. I mean, it just, you could never complain about anything because she could always trump you. If you wanted to compare hard life to hard life, she would, she'd win the argument every time, okay? Now catch this. You also could never argue with my mother about the goodness and the love of Christ. Couldn't. Because she chose along the way to live in the answers. My mom, if you tried to have sympathy for her, she'd call you out. Oh, you lost a son? Well, God gave me another one. That's me. I'm the replacement baby. Call myself the blessing. All right? <laughs> the family. Right? Well, God gave me two more children. Yeah, but you buried a son. Yeah, well, we would have never had Sharon and Jeff. Well, your husband's sick. I know, but he's so faithful. You can see his godliness. You could not get her to back off of the goodness of God. In fact, if you looked at her and said, Phyllis, you've had such a hard life, she'd look at you and say, what are you talking about? I've had a wonderful life. Well, Phyllis, God wasn't fair to you. What are you talking about? He saved me. He rescued my marriage. All of my kids walk with the Lord. My boys are preachers. What are you talking about? I've had an incredible life. You could not argue with her about the goodness of God. Why? Because she had authority. She had authority. The most authoritative voice is the one who has suffered and by faith chosen to believe in the goodness and love of God. And my mom spent most of her adult life comforting others as she had been comforted. She literally was on the phone all day and she wasn't gossiping. She was her own personal counseling center. And she had no degree except she had her PhD in hard life. And she chose to believe that God was good. See how that works. Why did God pick her? I don't know. I have no idea. She knows now. She's with Jesus. He explained it all. I don't know. What did she do with it? Well, that one I know. That one I know. She was simple enough to just take the Bible at face value. So she would read a verse like that and she would just try to do it. And her perspective 
was that of a loving God who cared for her. Right? We live in a war. Assign the miserable parts of your life to the aggressor, not the liberator. It's a very big deal. We live in a war and you're the object of it. One wants to kill you, one wants to save you. Why doesn't God make it go away? Because he's got a freedom. He wants a relationship. Every relationship necessitates a choice. And choices have to have alternatives and you don't have to follow God. Does he care? Of course he does. We're sitting here. We're the church. He cares greatly. And we are to hear and we are to respond. What about me? Why did it happen to me? I don't know. But I know the path of freedom is forgiveness and love, compassion and kindness. That's what I know. And I know that when you redeem your pain, it causes it to somehow make sense. And God has given you a place of authority and a place of credibility that I can't have because I haven't lived your life, see? And when you exercise that for God's benefit, for the love of another, he uses you in powerful ways. So band comes out. Guys, I, I know that a lot of us are hurting and struggling on a bunch of levels, right? Everything from the job to the kids to the marriage and there's, you know, for every person in here, there's a personal blank that you could fill in. This is what I know about life struggles. When I, when I go through struggles and hard times, and I do, and if you haven't yet, <clears throat> you just haven't been alive long enough, your turn's coming, right? I always want to look at God, and I have looked at God many times, and I've said, okay, I learned it. I learned it. Make it go away. And my timeline and God's timeline don't ever seem to line up with each other. And whatever truth he's allowing to be pressed into my life, usually becomes the richest part of my life. I believe that the greatest gifts God's ever given me is my pain. Because nothing makes me seek him more, nothing makes me love others more, nothing makes me sturdier in life than the lessons I've learned through pain. So what I encourage you to do today when you're tired and worn out is maybe rededicate back to God. Go to the answers. Grab his arm again and say, God, what you take me to, you'll take me through. I want to give up. <clears throat> I want to go with you. See? And what God gives you in that process is eternal in its value. So think about it, pray about it, and struggle with God.